Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. If a week is a long time in politics, an hour is even longer in finance. With one speech, Quasi Quarteng's Trasonomics took the UK from one of several basically sane developed nations facing significant headwinds to an absolute basket case. An FT index of political scientists has placed the UK to the furthest economic right than any of the 275 parties in 61 countries that they rank, to the right of Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia, to the right of Trump's Republican or Bolsonaro's Liberals. There have now been six polls putting the Tories between 20 and 33 points behind Labour, But as Chomsky said, times are too difficult and the crisis too severe to indulge in schadenfreude. My guest today self-describes as an economist and fisherman. David Blanchflower is a professor of economics at Dartmouth College and the author of many books, including his latest, Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? He came to wider prominence as a former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, dubbed the Threadneedle One, when he stood <laughs> alone in seeing the depth of the global financial crisis about to engulf us in the late noughties and urged action to condemnation and derision. Welcome to the bunker, Professor David Blanchflower. Thank you. Um, I just should say after the introduction, my daughter was at St. Andrews at the time and she called me one day and she said, somebody's called you an idiot without a village. <laughs> I would say the last laugh is on you. Right. Let's start at the end and go backwards. Okay. Sterling has recouped some of its losses, although it is going down again now. Guilt markets are looking calmer. The FTSE is up a bit. Was this all a storm in a teacup caused by Debbie Downers like me? No, I don't think so. I, it feels like markets are sitting on a cusp and, and are very fragile. And I think the way the best illustration of that is what happened in the mortgage markets. So Bank of England intervenes. The bond yields had risen a lot. They came back down. But actually, the uncertainty that now prevails meant that they were unable to price products. So that's, so essentially you've closed this market off. Mm. But I think what we're seeing, it relates to the point you made about the, the, the polling. Uh, the reality is that there's another market that really matters, the market for people, the, the, the housing market especially. And it certainly appears that the housing market is really set to, to, to collapse. And there's 1.6 million households who are going to have to refinance their mortgage from, say, 3% to 9% or 10%. There are people who cannot pay their bills. And I've talked to MPs in the last week or so who say, and Tory MPs as well as Labour MPs, who say they're absolutely inundated with people saying, we can't pay our bills. What are you doing? Hmm. So, so yes, we and again, the final thing is today we saw, which is pretty astonishing, we saw the independent OBR go into Downing Street to be given their marching orders, as far as I can tell. And they marched out in 45 minutes. Who knows what was said? And then the government says, yes, we're going to get a report from OBR, but we're not going to tell you about it. We're going to sit for six weeks and sit on it. And, well, I don't think that's going to work because I will be jumping up and down saying, well, you're, what are you hiding? So I think what's happened is once you've lost credibility, you're in trouble. And the other thing from yesterday, the prime minister went out and gave those eight car crash interviews, trying to calm things. She hadn't said anything for, for a week. And actually yesterday... Bond yields rose again on the back, go, back of her saying 
completely idiotic things. Mm. So I wrote a set of columns, and I would say we're now at the point where two bits. Markets prevent clueless amateurs doing stupid things. But once they've, once they've done stupid things, the, the, the markets are sitting ready to collapse, holding them to account, saying to them, you can't do more of this idiocy. So the problem is, I think, once you've lost it, it's very, very hard to put it back. It's the, you know, it's Pandora's box. You've opened the box and the wind's out. Nobody trusts you. Nobody believes you. And electorally, it's a disaster. And the question is, who actually supports this stuff other than the IEA and a couple of right-wing think tanks and perhaps people who are the pals of the, of the chancellor who've been shorting the pound like crazy and made money from it? So this mm. is really, in my lifetime, I've been an economist for 50 years, I have never seen such abject incompetence Considering this sort of preview criticism was out there, not just from you, there were a lot of people saying, how is she going to square this idea that, you know, all the spending stays as it is. She gives a big package to energy and also cuts taxes. What has amazed me is that I think they seemed genuinely surprised by the reaction. And that's the bit... I don't understand if they're pursuing a policy that they expected would cause a maelstrom in the short term, I wouldn't expect this level of surprise. It seems to me they thought they were going to be hailed as conservative heroes by the markets. I think that's right. And I think if you was it is it Chris Philp, the the chief is it one of the the Treasury ministers? So Quarteng stands up. And this guy tweets out, oh, great, what a great reaction. Look, the pound has strengthened. <laughs> I mean, you know, okay, great. Well, stand by your beds. That didn't last long. <laughs> I mean, go back a second. You know, the analogy perhaps is one about Thatcher and poll tax, right? I mean, what you saw there was that she, was, she seemed utterly surprised about the reaction to the poll tax. In, in the end, that's what did her in, in a sense, not understanding what was going on. So you're right. I think if you look back, the two, the two of them, Quartang and Truss, they wrote this thing, Britannia Unchanged, they unchained and unchanged, um, and they were very much pushed by these right-wing groups, Minford, Jessup, uh, and, and others, mm. that, that in a sense they, they, they accepted these kind of views which I would describe as completely crackpot. But yeah. it's, it's, I mean, I mean, not mainstream. Not no. I used to, I said a couple of times, but if you think this is important, find me an, an economist from from the top twenty universities in the UK who agree with this. Um, I mean, the famous phrase with with Thatcher was, "Name me two economists that support you." And one of them was Minford. And on the way home in the car, she said, thank goodness they didn't ask me for three. <laughs> so, I, I mean, in a sense, your point is incredibly wealthy. I don't understand why they seem surprised. They certainly seem surprised of the market reaction that had occurred. But if they're pals, I mean, apparently Quartang was talking to uh, O'Day and these others about it, and, the, and others were short in the pound. But his mm. view was, I don't care about the pound. It'll sort itself out. Well, the utter naivety is in fact the reality. And in a sense, that's what you would have wanted Tom Scholar to say to them. Tom Scholar would have said, this is crazy. And in fact, what happened also... No, that's why they got pal- rid of him, because he would have said that. Well, right, um, right. And my old pal Nick McPherson, who was the permanent secretary of the Treasury for years, who I know well, he tweeted out, well, it was a disaster to, to fire Scholar. And then he tweeted out, which I thought was the most telling thing of all. He said, 
the Treasury would have not been happy about market reactions. Well, permanent secretaries of the Treasury who've retired don't say stuff like that. I mean, this was a way of saying this is a disaster. Hmm. So the um, Treasury was basically pushed away, not allowed to say this is going to be a disaster. And here we go. In a sense, what matters is what do you do now? How do you get yourself out of this mess? And actually, that's a really, really hard thing to do. I mean, Richard Murphy and I have been trying to sit and think about this. We've sort of sat down together and said, supposing I was the governor of the Bank of England and you were the chancellor, what would we do? The classic one, so what's the story about, you know, the best way to get a Manchester is not to go from here. So you're now in such a situation that it's really unclear what to do. What should the central bank do? What should I mean, essentially, the clearest thing you've got to do is to scrap this and start again. When the head, the current head of the Bank of England was appointed, it was reported at the time that the primary qualification that made him, to use Boris Johnson's words, the outstanding candidate, was the fact that he was positive about Brexit. Is this an infection of the sort of Brexit cakeism into fiscal policy? Because it feels to me a little bit like the people who believe they can will facts in and out of existence, just like they did with Brexit, are now in charge of fiscal policy. Well, that's a great point. The reality is that we're in highly uncertain times, right? And in the UK context, Brexit has been and always was going to be a disaster. These same people are the ones who push for it. My view is that there is no, I have not yet heard a single benefit from Brexit. There are only costs. So you appoint you appoint um, Bailey for his for his pro Brexit stuff. This is not based on intellectual anything. And then what you have is a is a, an MPC um, that hasn't really got any diverse views. So here's when I first joined it, I was the only person who didn't live in London and the southeast and hadn't been to Oxbridge. Today, we, every single person on the MPC sits there and they all live in London. Great. So we made a proposal that you, what you want is a diversity of view. Now, mm. what's pretty interesting now is that I think the governor now looks like a poodle. So what happens is that we may have, eventually we have a statement from the Bank of England. Well, we don't. Everyone says this, we didn't have a statement from the Bank of England. Actually, what we have is a statement from the governor. And Chris Giles, the FT economics correspondent, immediately tweeted, this statement looks like it was written by the Treasury. So mm-hmm. I, my immediate reaction was, well, what's the governor of the Bank of England t- setting monetary policy for? That's not what he does. The MPC does it. And I said, if it had been me, I'd have immediately stormed down to his office, banged on the door and said, what are you doing? You don't set monetary policy. Well, a number of people have said to me, but that's the reason that you said we need diversity of view, because what are the other eight people doing? Where are they? Why is the MPC not meeting every single day and trying to work out what's going on? And then you have the then you have Hugh Pill made a statement, I think it was on Tuesday, and then immediately the next day, the action of the bank contradicted what he said the day before. So it just looks like, it just looks like not just that he's supporting Brexit. He looks like a poodle. And what I have heard was that as soon as Quartain got in, he told Bailey he had to come meet him twice a week. Well, what's the point of having an independent central bank if you have the Treasury on his head? And when the Treasury is so incompetent as this, that now you have craziness. So, so it seems to me that the Bank of England is in deep trouble. Our proposal is that you have regional representation with the intention that you have a diversity of view. Danny, you've been around the block more than once, I'd say. Um, is there any precedent for a central bank 
acting to ameliorate a government policy from which the government refuses to resile um, using sort of underwritten by taxpayers effectively because it poses a significant risk to the... I mean, my head was spinning when, when I saw that statement because what it basically was saying was that the, the government won't change its mind, so it's up to us to sort of pick up the pieces using taxpayer money. Is, is that a fair reading of it? I think it probably is a fair reading, but there's an intervention on that score. <laughs> so in, on the 28th of September 1976, Dennis Healy went to Heathrow Airport and the pound had collapsed so badly he came back from Heathrow Airport and borrowed money from the IMF. Mm. What we saw on Monday, was it Monday? Maybe, I mean, every, I mean, I, the hours fold into each other. Yes. <laughs> IMF issues a statement, and I think people missed the important part, which is exactly what you just said. What they said was, we can't, A, you shouldn't have done this, and you shouldn't have increased inequality like that because raising inequality doesn't work and so on. But what it also said is, you should not be in a position where fiscal and monetary policy are fighting against each other. And that's what the IMF said. You know what I think, Alex, one of the big things that's coming? In fact, there's two major moments coming. The first moment that the British journalists have focused on is the party conferences next week. But the second one, and I hear British journalists are heading there, is that the annual meetings of the IMF in Washington, D.C. are in two weeks' time. So you can imagine every journalist is going to be talking to every finance minister and everybody else about what do you think the implications are of what's happened in the U.K.? What do you think about these actions? Because the IMF issued this statement. So I think those are two things over the next two weeks, and it might well be. Imagine a comment from some from a high official, the president of the World Bank or the chair of the IMF or something. So this, this is really a catalyst because other ministers, everybody's going to be asked by a British journalist, do you think this is a good way to run, to run economic policy where you have the two things contradicting each other? And, and as soon as anybody says anything, that's the headline. So that's what I hear from journalists, that they think it'll be hard for them to actually get through that meeting without a real jolt to markets. And conference, as you say, will be difficult because every time a Secretary of State stands up, they have to either announce cuts or announce something that costs money that sends markets spinning again. But then, of course, every journalist seeks out every single Tory MP they can find, especially those in marginal constituencies, and says, what do you think of this, on, given that the British... They're all marginal constituencies now. <laughs> and then, I think so the question will be, um, have you thought about a new career? Have you thought about applying for any more job? What do you, you know, so those are the questions, and how does anybody answer it? They're going to find, and, and of course, there were 113 of the 357 MPs voted for her. So at the meeting, I mean, literally every journalist is just going to find every delegate and say to them, what do you think about the 33-point poll lead? And what are your constituents saying to you about this disaster? Do you think it's great? And what are they going to say? So, mm. I, I, so that means that the confidence of the markets it, and the points I've been trying to make is that, yeah, the confidence of the markets may be a big deal, but I think the confidence of the people is a big deal. Consumer confidence is at the lowest level already before last Friday – before they even started, the the UK was headed to recession. I mean, there's numbers come out today, a slight rise in the GDP number. And I saw a set of Tory MPs going, whoopee, look at that. Actually, what the Guardian reported this morning 
is that in the G7, since the start of 2020, the UK is the one with the slowest recovery. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty hard for the Tory government to blame, well, they can blame the last government and the government before that and the government before that, but it was the Tory government and Truss and Quartain were ministers in those governments. So how, how does that get you credibility? You say, we didn't get growth, but you voted for the policies that you say are bad. Why did you do that? Are you lying then or are you lying now? One of them. What happens when the Bank of England stops buying bonds? They've said they will do this for a couple of weeks more. Um, do they extend it? Do they continue um, with this scheme to rescue the government? Or is this basically how long uh, Downing Street has to resolve this? Well, the first thing is when you say they, let's go back to our original point. The MPC did not do this. This was basically done by the Treasury because the Treasury actually had to backstop it. But this was not a decision made by the MPC, and it should have been, right? They should be banging. Why are they banging on the door, Sam? What are you doing? So the problem is that once you've started um, doing this intervention, the problem is that you, you obviously the reality is that this thing is now being propped up. So, uh, so what are you going to do if you stop? That is going to be a problem. You may well have to do, do, you know, do other things. I mean, Murphy and I have actually thought about today, maybe what you should do is scrap all of these policies that have been undertaken, do a windfall tax, and perhaps, given that the Bank of England could actually announce these things in day one, perhaps you announce a $100 billion energy bond that the Bank of England, I don't know, issues at a $10 billion a week or something, and, and the bank buys. I mean, that's at least a plausible outcome. Mm. Um, would get you out of this mess. So, so I don't see them. I don't see them stopping. I think the expectation is they're going to have to keep doing more of it. I mean, the other thing is they were supposed to do quantitative tightening. Okay, Bango's quantitative. The day before, I think. But again, this is a decision made by the MPC, and what we've seen is they haven't spoken. If it was me, I would be banging on that door so hard. I mean, this is resignation matters. Why yeah, are you yeah. on an independent MPC? When you're a poodle, when there's all these poodles, is the, is the OBR a poodle? Is the government of the Bank of England a poodle? Correct. Well, stand up and say something. And so if you're not, I mean, I think the market response is that nobody's standing up, nobody's saying anything sensible. They're just doing what these lunatics say. And yeah, okay, there's a temporary little change. But how, how does anybody think, you know, how does anyone think that the mortgage market, I mean, it, it, are, are the, I mean the mortgage sellers stop selling things? Mm. Halifax. Virgin, HSBC, Santander, they're not selling products. I mean, have you ever heard? Alex, have you ever heard? <laughs> no. I, I haven't oh. heard of much of what, what is no. going on. No. Before I let you go, can I just widen it out a tiny bit? How weird has it been to see that cluster of economists and think tanks who believe the market is always right and the profit motive is the only motive that matters, to accuse traders and speculators of being unpatriotic and profiteering, to accuse the markets of being woke and the IMF of being a left-wing body, which, let me tell you, as a Greek, caused <laughs> us to laugh long and bitterly. Yeah, yeah. well... Uh, I mean, it's not as if we haven't been here before, right? So we were there for for, for Brexit. And I remember, the, you remember the intervention recently by uh, Emily Maitlis 
about what they used to do at the BBC. And a lot of times, yeah, yeah. I would get asked to go on with someone like Minford. I'm not going to go on with him. Now, maybe that was a mistake. And Emily said that the, what happened in the debate was that, you know, there was like 40,000 people who say it's a really bad idea and six people who said it was great. And we'd put one of each on and it would look as if, you know, it would look as if the debate was balanced. I used to say to my students, it's a bit like this, a Nobel Prize winner in physics is asked to go on and talk about whether the, you know what, what happens to the solar system, and he's asked to go on with a flat Earth society guy. And the question mm. is, does mm. he do it, or does he just say this is this is madness? So we've been here before. We've been. I've debated with Minford. I mean, I've known Minford for years, and every. I mean, he's just is mad. And so the question is, what, what is this surprising? Um, I thought what was another interesting intervention actually was that the, after we saw this trickle down stuff. Biden's actually tweeted out, I don't believe in trickle-down economics. Yeah. And he was a mile down the road a couple of days after they, she was appointed prime minister, you know, during the thing with the funeral of the queen, and refused to speak to her. He was a mile down the road. And then and then she comes to Washington, and basically the, the, he says to her, there's no chance, that you better not mess with the Irish peace accords, and there's no chance of a, of a trade deal between us. They might not be serious representatives of that school of economics, but there is a school of economics that sort of supports this kind of stuff. And what I'm interested in, I guess, is not just after the big market failures we've seen from 2008 onwards, but much more fundamentally, this notion that the pie can increase infinitely at a time when the levels of inequality and environmental damage dictate that we have to pause and work on the quality of the pie rather than the size. I mean, is, the, is this school of economics now thoroughly discredited? Will what the UK has just done act as an international cautionary tale to say to other right-leaning governments, this is what happens when you get your wish? Well, I do. I hope so, and I think so. Because again, go back to the IMF intervention. The IMF intervention, it's only a paragraph which everyone should read. They actually say almost exactly what you've just said. They said growth does not come by rising inequality. Um, and and I've, I've done a lot of work on happiness and despair and mental mm. health and so on. And what we've seen around the world is, the, is mental health has been really impacted. I mean, an example in the United States, I've done work on, on what I call despair. And despair is people are asked, over the last 30 days, how many of those days were bad mental health days? And so we look at people who, who 7% of people say all 30 days, two-thirds say zero. And in fact, if you look at less educated middle-aged people, one in six say that. And so we have an issue here of mental health and so on. But I think the answer is that what we've learned, here's, I think, the right way to think of this. What we've learned from behavioral economics, actually, is relative things matter. So I, I quite like the analogy. So I use this analogy often about the woman on the Mile End Road omnibus. And the Mile End Road is called the Mile End because it's a mile from Aldgate. It's a mile from the city of London. And it's where two things collide. So let's just do this story and think it through. So what you did, what, um, what they did you know, immediately when they came into office, they said, the boys sitting a mile up the road... Um, earning bonuses will allow those bonuses to be higher. 
Now we'll then give them a tax cut on those bonuses and all will be well. So then you ask yourself, well, a mile down the road, what about the nurses in the London hospital where my daughter was born and the woman riding on that mile end road omnibus who can't feed herself, got no money to feed or, or heat her house and look after her kids. She lost her job in the pub last week that couldn't pay its heating bills and sees and sees the, the people who appear, who go, you know, come through the East End on their way to Canary Wharf, whatever, doing really, really well. And what we've learned is relative things matter. And I think what you've said is consistent with what's happened in the polls. I'm struggling. And what we've seen is a prime minister coming in saying, we're just going to pay the rich lots more and it'll be fine. And I think the analogy, the analogy I like, which is a little slightly rude one, Galbraith said, it's a bit like saying we feed oats to the horses but down the road, there is something in it for the sparrows. Danny, practically looking forward, what, what happens now? Markets, what we call markets, are like a, often like a sort of murmuration of flesh-eating starlings. Once they, <laughs> they smell rot in the air, and I've experienced this, And I've experienced this from the Greek perspective. Once they start betting against you, they do not tend to move on until the carcass is picked clean. How do we get out of this tailspin? Like, practically, what, what do we do now? Well, put, they've put us in such a position that I just don't know. I mean, it really is. You know, how, The best way to get to Manchester is not to start from here. I think that's a really, really hard question. About what do you do? I think I think you have to say we need to get the children and the ideologues out of the way and get the adults in the room and start to think seriously. I mean, I I was I I, I was very struck actually. I watched I watched um, Mark Carney being interviewed on the Today Show, and I thought to myself, I wrote I literally wrote, "Come back, Mark." <laughs> I mean, what you come back, Mark? Well, I mean, this was a serious professional who understand, understood about climate change and inequality and other things and would have, told the, would have told the Chancellor to go shove it. So what you need are independent thinkers who can try and think about the, the, the best way for the country to proceed, but they've got to calm nerves. So you, in a way, you've got to, get rid of the, got to get rid of the ideologues. I don't know that there's anything that, that, that Quarteng or, um, or Trust can actually do. At this moment... It's really very hard. What should the central bank do? If I was sitting on the committee, I would sit there and go, okay, everybody, should we raise rates or should we cut them? Hmm. Where are we? Are we going to stop doing this QE thing? How much should we do? How, how are we going to deal with this unfunded thing? I mean, the reality is that the probability is, for example, you have to the simple thing would be immediately to impose a windfall tax, and that might actually assist the finances. I think we have to sit down, get, get sensible people in the room, come back, Mark, uh, and try and say, well, they've made a complete disaster. Come back, scholar. What can we actually do to rectify the disaster that they've created? And I must tell you a sad analogy. So I, I own a house on Sanibel Island, which yesterday, I spent much of yesterday looking in my hands because my house was hit by a giant hurricane. And we're going to rebuild. And we and we're and so the analogy is a pretty good one. We have a house, we have eighteen houses. We can't we can't. There's no the bridges have been wiped out. We cannot get there. We're we're going to mm. hire a captain to take his boat over and try and look at what we've got. And we collectively decided together that the eighteen homes that are owned, we've collectively decided that we're all in this together. 
And if one person's lost the roof, we're all going to go in there and work it out together. We're going to hire a boat captain to come in and collectively we're going to we're going to try and solve this problem. So that, I think, is a pretty good analogy. It's happened right now. We've been talking about how we do it together and everybody's going to muck in. Everybody's going to, you know, if your roof is broken, the other 17 are going to muck together and we're going to mend your roof. That's what we're going to do. So I think that's not a bad analogy, is it? No, it's not. And I wish you all the best with with a house, which is uh, your fishing retreat, I think. Thank you. Of course. Remember, there's a new bunker every day, so don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And if you want to support our podcast family, consider backing our work on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I want to leave you with the words of Ha Jun Chang. The world works as it does only because people are not the totally self-seeking agents that free market economics believes them to be. We need to design an economic system that exploits other human motives. The likelihood is that if we assume the worst about people, we will get the worst out of them. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreou. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.